begin this study. I hear the door opening. Maybe it's someone joining us. But we will begin with prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you for who you are, Lord. I pray that you um, continue to give us a passion for your name, Lord. Continue to convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord. Um, let our convictions of who you are, Lord, our knowledge of who you are, Lord, stir our hearts to be bold with the gospel, recognizing, Lord, that it's only through the gospel that we are able to have salvation. Lord, we thank you for your son, that he died for us, Lord, that being fully God and fully man, he's able to bridge the gap that sin had caused between us and you, Lord. I pray for this night that you um, just continue to work in our hearts and our minds as we look into your word to understand how to, as faithfully as possible, try to interpret um, the Old Testament narrative, Lord. I pray that we lean fully on you, Lord, for this task. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so tonight, as I said, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament narrative. So this is the first week that we're now going to be studying specifically the Old Testament. We've been spending all of our time on the New Testament. And so tonight on through the rest of this semester, which ends at the end of this month already, uh, will be in the Old Testament. So Pastor Sam will be teaching next week on Old Testament law. Uh, so tonight, as you can see, it's Old Testament narrative. So, you guys ready? So look at your note sheet, your packet. You can see there's a big space on the front side uh, because I want us to spend a lot of time with the question for that. But before we get there, let's look at the introductory questions. What is the goal of reading Old Testament narrative? When I say Old Testament narrative, I'll, I'll use narrative and story interchangeably, synonymously. So stories in the Old Testament, narrative of the Old Testament. Obviously, when we say story, we're not saying a made-up story. These are real historical stories. But if someone were to ask you, what is the goal of reading Old Testament narrative? What are some of the things that you would say? Okay, understanding how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, that's key, that's important. It might seem like an odd question because, like, why am I narrowing specifically on Old Testament narrative? The answer for this question, I think could, there could be multiple answers, and I think Michael gave a good answer. But generally speaking, the answer for this should be the same answer for no matter what genre you're talking about in Scripture. Right? The goal is the same when you read Scripture. So, let me broaden the question then. What is the goal of reading the Bible? Understanding who God is. So, if it's about understanding who God is and how it's fulfilled in the New Testament, then we are saying the goal of reading, specifically Old Testament narrative and any other genre, is theological. Because we want to know who God is. It's a theological endeavor. Uh, who is God? What is 
this tell us about the character of God? It's, it's a theological matter. And I want to make that point specifically with this genre because I think a danger can be, uh, with myself included, when we read these stories in the Old Testament, we could read them just strictly and only as history. Obviously, they are history. But also, we want to read them with the goal of understanding who God is within it. So we want to get um, a theological point out of it, what we're learning, what is the meaning of the text. Um, and so that's kind of some of the things we'll be talking about tonight. So, yeah, to know God and learn more about him, this makes reading narrative a theological pursuit is what I have written down for that, a theological pursuit. And then the next question is, why do you think God chose narrative or story to communicate theological truth for us, um, for us, for the majority of the Old Testament? What are the advantages of using narrative or story? Or what are the disadvantages of using it? Why did God choose narrative or stories to communicate theological truths to us? Stories might not be as interesting, and we stick with it. What was that? Just reading historical facts without having the narrative and everything goes along with it. We might not keep reading. It's true. <coughs> that's that's true. So it's very interesting. Stories are interesting. Stories captivate our interests, and we want to know how conflicts are resolved and uh, what happens to this character when he's struggling here or there. Uh, so that's an advantage of using narrative. Personality a little bit more too. Mm, yeah, it conveys personality more, in the sense that we are able to relate to it more, right? Um, I think. Humans and situations and events are complex. They're not always black and white, this way or that way. There's a lot of emotion and feelings in it. And when we read stories like that, we're able to relate better to them. Does it make God more personable as well? Yeah, it can make God more personable. That could be an advantage as well, right? Uh, he's not just listing out facts or just things but we see a God who is very much involved in it throughout these stories. So he's very personal in that way. Are there disadvantages? Misinterpretation. Misinterpretation. What do you mean by that? We take something out of the story that wasn't intended to be in the story. Okay, okay. So kind of going off of that, I think that's one of the largest disadvantages, potentially, because when we read a story... It's not as easy to tell what the theological point is all the time. When you're reading about David and Goliath, what is the theological point? Uh, we see it as a fun story and how God is working. Maybe that's the theological point. Uh, or just think of any story in the Old Testament. Sometimes if it's the theological point isn't explicitly stated, as maybe some are in New Testament epistles or specific instructions like the law, which we'll be talking about next week. 
So that could be a disadvantage where it's harder to understand maybe the, the points, the theological points. Anything else? I think you guys covered it pretty well. Advantages is the story is how God communicated, and it also adds credibility because it's not just somebody saying this is God's words. It's it's how it was communicated adds credibility to the communication. It adds credibility to the communication to the author in his writing is what you're saying. Yeah. Those who existed at the time. Because yeah. if I would have wrote it, I wouldn't have looked so bad. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Um, I also think, I mean, we can learn so much of how God works in history throughout the Old Testament when we read history that God is orchestrating and planning. Uh, and we could apply that for us today. Um, I recently wrote a book review uh, that had to do with how we keep God centered in our historical pursuits or how to interpret history as a Christian, pretty much is what the purpose of the book was. And seeing how God uh, is orchestrating all events to come about uh, and how he's personally involved in them in these historical events. So when we interpret history as Christians, should we interpret God's work in them? I would say yes. Uh, But it gets a little tricky when you get to the academic pursuit of it. And so this is what this book was talking about. It's very interesting. But it's important to see how God is working in history and what he does in history. I almost broke that. So, So yeah. Old Testament narrative is, I think, one of the most interesting uh, Old Testament genres. Any other comments on these two questions? So we learned that it's a theological pursuit. We don't just read it as history. So there's something special about it compared to other history books. This is a scripture. Um, And we see God explicitly working in it, and we could know there's a theological purpose in it, and we want to know God more through it. All right, reading narrative. Uh, We're going to be spending a lot of time in Joshua. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Joshua, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 7. Chapter 2 and chapter 7. So what's one one of the very first steps you need to do when you want to interpret any book of the Bible? Okay, that's important. <laughs> what else? Ask who the audience was. Okay, ask who the audience was. Before we even get to that one. The, know the author? The historical context. What was that? Historical context. Well, that kind of goes along with what Lonnie said. Historical context is knowing who it was written to and, all, and what was going on. Before, before these things, I mean... It's involved, historical context, literary context needs to be kind of involved in this first step. It kind of goes along, along with what you said first, uh, Michael. Um, reading in one sitting. Reading in one sitting, okay. I'm looking for the word observe. Uh, so we want to observe the text, right? And that goes 
in line with the reading of it. I was wondering if one of you guys would have said pray. That's also an appropriate first way to start. Uh, but we want to observe the text. And so you can see here, under reading narrative, it says observe. Ask yourself why the details mentioned in the narrative are mentioned to help determine the theological meaning of the text. So remember, we're saying there is a theological reason for the text. It's not just giving a description of things that happened. There is a theological meaning in the text. So we need to ask ourselves why the author specifically put the details he put in there to come up to recognize what the theological meaning is. Right? And that starts with observation. And I think that's simple enough for us to understand. Uh, how does that one episode, and I'm using the term episode here to refer to um, a specific story within a larger story. Uh, so how does one episode in the story relate to the larger story? And we're going to be looking at the story starting in chapter 2 with Rahab. And the Israelites' journey into conquering Israel, uh, conquering the promised land, and they start with the land of Jericho. Uh, so that's what we're going to be observing a lot tonight. So Joshua chapter 1, the book starts, to give us some context, the book starts with God telling Joshua to be strong and courageous and to lead Israel into the promised land. So we see that um, kind of starting off the book of Joshua. And then we're going to read chapter 2, so I'm not going to give away what all of chapter 2 is about, but it's about Rahab, I'm going to say that. Then chapters 3 and 4 describe the Israelites' preparation for their attack on Jericho, which we will see is Rahab's city. So that's chapters 3 through 5. Chapter 6 describes the capture of Jericho. And then the uh, next chapter we'll be also discussing is a story of Achan and, the, and what happens with him. So let's spend some time. If you have your own Bible, I encourage you to write in it or make notes that you want to. Uh, I want us, as we read Joshua chapter 2, to make as many observations as we can, specifically about Rahab. All right. So, could I have someone read for us uh, verse 1 through 7? Who to read 1 through 7? All right, Michael. Then someone else read uh, 8 through 14. All right, and then 15. The next paragraph breaks at 21. All right, and then the last bit is the shortest, 22 through 24. Sure. All right, Lonnie. All right, so we'll just read straight through, make as many observations as you can on your note sheet about how it's describing Rahab, and then we're going to talk about why those details are there to try to come up with the theological meaning of the text. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as the far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide, them, and hide yourselves for three days, until the pursuers have returned. Then, afterward, you will make go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall bind this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. If Anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be upon his head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid upon anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you, do, if you tell this business of your hours, we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath, which you have made us to swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all, given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So we see the story of Rahab, which is kind of interesting, right? Uh, Israel is now starting to go into the promised land and is going to be conquering the land to, that will make up the promised land, starting with Jericho. And chapter 1, as I said, is God kind of telling Joshua to go and lead the people, be strong and courageous in doing it. Chapter 2 all of a sudden takes some time to talk about this woman, and we have to ask ourselves why. Then chapters, as I said, 3 through 5, uh, talk about uh, the preparation for the attack of Jericho. Then chapter 5 is them conquering Jericho. And then I want to read a couple more 
verses in chapter 6 where we see Rahab mentioned again. So we see Rahab mentioned again in chapter 6, verse 17. Now I'll read this for us. It says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Then verse 23, skip down to verse 23. She's mentioned again here. Uh, So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Then skip down one more verse to verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. All right, so what are some observations we can make about Rahab? She's a prostitute. All right, she's a prostitute. She apparently believed that God exists. She knew about God. She knew about God, and she believes that God exists. She That's... believes he's supreme, too. Mm-hmm. Their God is supreme. All right, she believes that he is supreme. She believes they'll take Jericho. She believes that they'll take Jericho. Why, why does she believe all these things? Because of the story she's heard about. God's people being successful and taking over. Yeah, and this is just kind of a side note. We're not going to really be going down this trail, but that shows how um, testifying to the work of God leads others to faith or simply seeing God's amazing work on display. That's what people see and then come to faith in Christ in our context. All right, anything else that we could say about Rahab? She hid the spies. She wanted to be on. She wanted to be on the side of God's people. Mm, she wanted to be on the side of God's people. And that took a lot of courage. So she was courageous mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. She was also savvy. She made a deal so that she could save her family. Mm, yeah. So her family saved throughout the story. Yeah. So this is kind of unexpected, uh, specifically. Uh, because of who she was as a prostitute, then being saved. Uh, one of the very first characters mentioned in the uh, Promised Land conquest, uh, we read in other parts throughout Scripture that God commands the Israelites to kill everyone, women and children, and all their cattle and everything, uh, to completely get a clean slate to wipe them out when they go in. Uh, but Near the beginning of this conquest, we already see an exception to the rule with Rahab. So that's an interesting thing to note. Anything else before we read chapter 7 together? I think this is a good place to start. So we're now going to read about another character. So who wants to read verses 1 through Five, Michael, all right, then six through 17, six through 17, okay, Tom, 
Uh, and then we'll just do one more section, 16 through the rest of the chapter. All right, perfect. From one through five, right? Yep. So again, same thing, just make observations uh, for Aiken and this next character. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For the Achan, or for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out of Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the ground on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? only to hand us over to the Amorites to eliminate us, if only we had been willing to live beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it, and they will surround us and eliminate our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also violated my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things designated for destruction, and they have both stolen and kept it a secret. Furthermore, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs before the enemies because they have become designated for destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you eliminate from your midst the things designated for destruction. Stand up, concentrate the people, and say, concentrate, or consecrate yourselves for, today, for tomorrow, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has said this. There are things designated for destruction in your midst, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you have removed the designated things from your midst. So in the morning, you shall come forward by your tribes. It shall be that the tribe which the Lord selects by lot shall come forward by families, and the family which the Lord selects shall come forward by households, and the household which the Lord selects shall come forward man by man. And it shall be that the one who is selected with the things designated for destruction shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has violated the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed 
a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua got up early in the morning and brought Israel forward by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was selected. He brought the family of Judah forward, and, and he selected the family of the Zerites, and he brought the family of the Zerites forward, man by man, and Zabdi was selected. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them and took them, um, and hid them in my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua, to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore to this day the name of the place is called the Valley of Acre. Alright, well, this isn't a happy ending at all for Achan. Uh, it's kind of an intense story where he takes some of the spoil of the land that he's not supposed to. Remember the main uh, rule as they come into the promised land is that they are supposed to completely uh, take out everything and not take anything for themselves. Uh, kill everything, cattle included, and do not take any of the spoil. And we see here he does, and he is punished for it in a great way. Uh, what are some observations we can make about Achan specifically, and even more broadly about this chapter and what happens? Achan thought he could hide from God. He thought he could hide from God. Who was Achan? <laughs> what tribe was he from? Judah. 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 So we could say that, right? He um, is a Hebrew, a tribe from the tribe of Judah. Uh, so from that, he should have been respectable in that sense, uh, just by his uh, lineage. Interesting that they selected him by lot. Yeah, it is versus God just telling it's it's Achan. Yeah, exactly. God was the one completely leading that, right? They would not have been able to know it was Achan unless God was the one who. Uh, he wasn't willing to fess up. up. Yeah, he but then he fessed up when yeah, he, when he was called out. He was called right? out. Yeah, he didn't fess up right at first. Can you imagine how scary that could have been for Achan? He was like, "Oh, I know. I was looking out for myself. I saw these things. I coveted after them, and I wanted them. So I know I sinned. But then now, God is after me." <laughs> 
What was that? It affected his whole family. It affected his whole family. That's an observation as well. It had consequences for the Israelites as a whole, too, because they lost the battle and 36 people were killed? Yeah, something like that, around 36. Yeah, 36. In verse 5, it talks about that. So yeah. it, it had far-reaching consequences, not just for him. Exactly. Yeah, so it shows that God is with Israel, with his people, when they are acting like his people. Right? When they're not disobeying him, when they're not rebelling against him. So there's a couple things that I think is very interesting. Right? Joshua, again, starts his conquest of the promised land. We have the story of Rahab, where she and her whole family is saved. This Canaanite woman, who is a prostitute, who would be one of the least expected people to be saved because of her faith. And then they conquer Jericho. And then the very next chapter, then we see here this man, Achan, who is from the tribe of Judah, who out of his lack of faith, disobeys God, doesn't listen to what his commandments are, doesn't fear God the same way Rahab does. And then we see the consequence of what happens to him and his family is really what was commanded by the Israelites to do to the Canaanites. So we kind of see these two characters kind of, their outcomes flip than what you would expect for just who they were, right? Uh, Rahab lives, Achan dies. Rahab's family, um, and all she has, it says, uh, remains with her and was not destroyed. It was all destroyed for Achan. Uh, So I wrote a list of different um, things contrasting the two people. So I said, woman, man, that's an easy contrast. Canaanite, Hebrew, prostitute, and supposed to be a respectable man uh, from the tribe of Judah, uh, Rahab should have died but survived. Achan should have prospered but died. Rahab, family and all she owned survived. Achan, his family and all he owned perished. Rahab, nation perishes, her nation perishes, uh, Jericho. And then Achan, his nation prospers. Rahab hides the spies from the king. Achan hides the loot or the things he gets from God and Joshua. Rahab fears God, fears the God of Israel. Achan does not fear the God of Israel. Rahab uh, has only heard of God, yet believes all the works he's done. Achan has seen the acts of God, but disobeys. Right? So you can kind of start to get a picture of that. It makes you wonder, as you're reading this story through the beginning of Joshua, uh, is the author intending to compare these individuals? Uh, and what you would expect is the opposite for just who they were uh, before seeing of what they did. And so that's what I want us to see. So maybe a conclusion. We're going to be going through the five steps of the interpretive journey in these passages as well, so we'll develop it a little bit more. But quickly, we could kind of conclude that when we begin... Um, well, I wrote down, when we begin reading the story of the annihilation of the Canaanites by the Israelites, the first two people we meet in the story are exceptions to the rule. Uh, it is not, or it is about having faith in God uh, more so than simply who you were born to. Um, 
And I think that's important to note because as Christians, we could read back into history and see this nation of Israel as God's chosen people. And then you could say, well, how is that? I don't like to use the word fair when it comes to these things, but why would God choose them as opposed to another nation? Like, is it simply because they're born in this nation that they will now inherit inherent life, eternal life, or be able to have God as their God? But we see there's exceptions to the rule. It's more so about personal faith. Uh, Achan did not inherit. Rahab did. What else did it say about Rahab? It says that she then lived with Israel. And so then she would have been partaking in uh, some of the good things from that. So, as I said, we're going to develop this a little bit more. Uh, but I wanted to show, at least in that introductory part, how much, how important just simple observation is to be able to see that there's some contrasts happening in this text, in this narrative, to that will then help us to understand the, the meaning behind the text here, of what the original author was intending to say. All right, uh, literary features of narrative. I feel like we just could kind of quickly go through some of these. And I think these are pretty simple to understand for the most part. This is just what you'd get for a lot of basic English classes. Um, obviously, we have plot, uh, the, organiza- the organizing structure that ties the narrative together, right? The plot of the story. This answers the what and the how of the story, the what and the how of the story is in the narrative. Uh, generally, there's a conflict and resolution in here. Uh, two, setting establishes the historical context of the narrative. This answers the when and the where of the story. The when and the where. Um, the setting, how important is the setting? We might not think that the, sto- the setting of a story is incredibly important, but we do see in some stories, narratives in the Old Testament, it makes a big difference in order to understand the point. Uh, or to see maybe kind of what's happening and read in between the lines a little bit. I think of uh, the story of the story of Ruth. Uh, how does the story of Ruth begin? Oh, that's fine. You don't need to know the names. The mother, the mother and father and two sons left miserable because they were starving. Where there was more food, went to where Ruth and, and the two sons married women from there. And Ruth, when, when the husband and the sons died, Naomi came back. Okay. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, do we know the reason why they left? Was it because they were starving? Who left, Naomi and Ruth? Uh, why they left out of Israel in the beginning? The family. I'll have to look back to the text. I don't remember off the top of my head, honestly. <laughs> Uh, well, because the point I was going to make is the plot or the setting changes here, right? They are in uh, Bethlehem. Verse this, one: There was a famine in the 
Okay, it is very first verse. All right. Uh, they are in Bethlehem here, and they move to Moab. Uh, and then they, the sons marry uh, Moabite women there. And the commentary I was looking at was suggesting how the setting, when the setting changes, uh, when an Israelite moves out of Israel or moves out of Bethlehem, the promised land, into this foreign land of Moab, where the Moabites live, uh, that's not generally a good thing. Uh, They are leaving the promised land. They are not necessarily, you should question what their relationship with the Lord is like. And you see Things happen, negative things happen. Uh, the husband dies, the sons die. And then quickly right after that, they move over back to Bethlehem or they go back and they start to prosper. What Ruth said to Naomi is she was going to worship her God mm-hmm. and live with her people. Yep, yep, yep. And so we see that's another exception to the rule as well with Ruth and Moabite. Uh, coming to faith as well. And she's even in the lineage of King David then. Um, but there is an example where we see settings change. And Israel may not have been too promised land if it was getting the famine because it was during the judges. Mm-hmm. So Israel might not have been much different from Moab because God often brought calamity on Israel when they were misbehaving during the judges period. Yeah, and yeah, that's true. And so... We do see um, Israel not always being the land of flowing with milk and honey, as it's described uh, many times. But at the same time, there's the specific territories that he gives specifically to the different tribes of Israel for them to possess that land. And depending on how obedient or disobedient they are to the Lord determines a lot in how um, good life is, right? Uh, but that's an example of simply the setting changing. And it's important to pay attention to those things as we read stories. Uh, characters as well. Uh, the individuals involved in the narrative is obviously. This answers the who of the story. So I think that's pretty straightforward. We know the different characters of the stories that we read. Uh, number four, I think, is more important, especially when it comes to um, biblical narrative. The viewpoint of the narrator or the authors who I'm referring to, uh, it's important to pay attention to how the biblical author interprets the history himself. Uh, Many times they might make a concluding remark at an end of a story to summarize the story and might interpret the history itself. Uh, Here is a good example in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. It says, all this took place because the Israelites have sinned against the Lord their God. So everything that had just was prior to that specific verse took place simply because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. And so there's making a claim of the reasons of why that history was happening. So you could see some of the meaning mentioned there. Uh, Comparison and contrast, we just did some of that. In Joshua, um, we see a lot of comparison and contrast throughout the Old Testament. I think of Saul and David as a huge one. 
where David and Saul are compared, the first two kings of Israel. Irony, um, this allows the narrator to speak up, or to sneak, I should say, to sneak up on the readers to make a strong point by making the opposite or drastically different assumed meaning. So as the reader is reading a story or an event or something, they think the logical conclusion is going to be this. And all of a sudden, ironically, things happen, and it's the exact opposite or a drastically different type of meaning than what was expected. So that would be the irony uh, component of, of a story. And there's some examples of this as well. Uh, an example of this would be from 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6, where, if you remember, the sons of Eli bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle to fight against the Philistines. And they lose, and the Philistines bring the Ark to kind of represent that they have conquered Israel's God because they now have captured the Ark. But then what happens in that story? It's ironic because, in a sense, it's like God has gone into their camp and now is... Um, defeating them from within. We see uh, their God that kept falling down, and um, eventually they just wanted to get rid of it. So that's an ironic example of Scripture, of a narrative. Uh, Okay, now let's get back to the text of Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 7. And we're going to go through the interpretive journey. Um, You all should be somewhat familiar now with these steps, since these are the same steps we've been working through um, throughout the different genres that we've been talking about thus far. And so we've already read the text, and so we've already made some good observations, so I think we're a good place to, to begin this. So step number one, grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? So we made the observations we need to observe first in order to be able to do step one. What could be right for step one, for chapters two and seven? Being on God's side is the right side. Being on God's side is the right side. Okay. And I think that would be faithful to say that's what it meant as well to the original audience or the biblical audience. Right? They would have seen this example of these two characters. And when you have faith in the Lord and obey him, that's the right side. And when you don't, destruction comes, no matter really who you are. Yeah, obedience is a key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No matter who you are, right? Uh, it could even be this... Canaanite prostitute, uh, and when she obeys, she lives and prospers with her whole family. Um, anything else that we could write in this section? What did the text mean to the biblical audience, or do you think that's sufficient? So the purpose of this uh First step is simply just to write a statement of what the text meant. So it could be one to three sentences when you're determining the meaning for the original audience. Now, obviously, this is in this step, we have the historical context. 
Uh, we want to look at the literary context and, and those sort of things as we make our observations. All right, step two. Measure the width of the river to cross. What's the difference between the biblical audience and us? We aren't Israel. We're not. Well, we aren't physical descendants. We're not trying to conquer anybody. We're not trying to conquer anyone. Yes, that's a big one. We are under a different covenant, I think is a big one as well. We're in the new covenant when Christ has come um, already in here. He has not. Other differences? I think you guys have gotten the gist of it. I have written down, we are under a different covenant than Achan, or Achan was. Uh, our situation is different. We are not in the, co in the conquest, and we are not involved in any type of literal holy war. Right? That's a big, big difference, a different context of what they were doing. All right, so those are important differences. Step three, cross the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle of the text? And again, I always say I think this is one of the most difficult, one of the most difficult steps. This is where you want to see now the similarities. So we observe the differences. What are the similarities when we are coming up with this theological principle? Uh, remember, this theological principle uh, is meant to be timeless, so it could be true then that is in the text, and then still true for us today. It's cultureless, right? What is a theological principle about God himself or how God works that we are actually pulling out from this text that is still true for us today? What could we say? Um, faith in God is uh, what saves us, not um, our lineage. All right, faith in God is what saves us, not our lineage or just our position or um, yeah, who we were born to, how much money we may have. Like we could apply it in different sort of ways. Uh, anything else? God views sin as, as a serious offense. God views sin as a serious offense. That's a very good similarity. We see the consequence of sin in a real physical way here. I mean, no, that's still a consequence for sin for us today in the spiritual way. Um, okay. Can't it's better hide. to be on God's side. <laughs> better to be on God's side. Can't hide from God. That's yeah. what you're say. All right. Yeah. I think those are some good things. I have written down, God sees past the superficial externals uh, and saves people who place their faith in him. So that's kind of saying what some of the things you're saying. Uh, deliverance is based on true faith and not externals, such as ethnicity or religious tradition. Um, it's based on true faith, is I think what we're saying. And again, I want us, from this text specifically, see the comparison between these two characters that we read about and how one was an interesting character that you would not expect Right, the prostitute versus the one from the tribe of Judah. Um, so their standing in society, I think, will make a big difference for us as we make the application with this with this passage. All right, 
consults the biblical map. Uh, step four, how does our principle, so what we wrote down, I hope you wrote something down on your sheet. Um, consult, how does our principle fits with the rest of the Bible? So we, remember, we want to make sure we're not contradicting ourselves or anything else in Scripture with what our principalizing um, principle is or theological principle is. Uh, how does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Next question, how does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? Uh, this is important here because you could have a theological principle and then the New Testament can, I think rightly, in a way, not change it, but could add to it, modify it in the context of Christ. Right. So it could be an example of faith in God is what saves New Testament modifies that, adds to it. It's faith in Christ and his work that saves us for our context in the new covenant. So what could we write, though, for this, besides what I just said? In the New Testament, it justifies, you know, the Gentiles are, uh, can be part of God's people as well. And it shows, like, uh, Rahab, even though she's not one of God's chosen people, is still saved. Yeah, yeah. Again, so it's, again, not dependent on the superficial externals, but on faith, uh, where she would have, she was a Gentile, non-Jew. Yeah. Sin separates us from God. Yeah, sin separates us from God. I have written down, the New Testament reaffirms that God looks beyond, beyond the superficial externals and saves people based on faith in Jesus Christ. So simply mere association with a tradition, with the group of people, will not save you. So we could, in New Testament standards, modify it and say, mere association with a church will not result in salvation. Right? Uh, for Achan, mere association with being from the tribe of Judah does not bring salvation. But rather, again, true faith, as Rahab demonstrated, Nacon did not. All right, lastly, fifth point, to grasp the, task, the text in our town using the, the theological principle to come into our town, to cross the bridge, grasp the text in our town. How should individual Christians today live out this theological principle. I see as I wrote people. Theological principle. You could change that. Or the modified theological principle. What are some things you could write? For the application now. How should Christians, individual Christians today, you and I, we've interpreted this text, chapters 2 and 7 specifically in relation to everything in between, but we're looking at those two people specifically. What are some applications that we can make have faith have faith okay no matter what you do and uh, how you justify it um, it's your faith that saves you um, okay not like just you know volunteering and uh, being active in a church doesn't mean anything if you don't have the faith okay that's good that, it's good to get a little bit more detail um, so in the essence yes it's half faith but we could get there with many different passages, because that's a reoccurring theme in Scripture, obviously. Uh, 
But with these passages specifically, uh, what could be a good, um, a good thing that we could apply for us? I think, Michael, you're, you're getting to it with the extra details. Uh, think about, again, who Achan is versus Rahab. And so for then us as Christians, I think this comes to judgment for us. We could apply it to how we judge people. Uh, I have written down, we are not to make judgments based on who God can and cannot save based on their current sinful activity or their current um, seemingly good position. Um, So I think for us as Christians, we can unintentionally make those sort of judgments and who we would rather talk with about the gospel and who we would not want to talk with about the gospel. Um, And so if you see these characters for us today, I think many of us might want to prefer talking to Aiken because he seemed like he's already in good standing and he fits in maybe a little bit better. Uh, But a good practical application for us is that we're not supposed to cast judgment on a seemingly good person versus one currently living in sin and one we would not want to associate with, right? We don't want to make judgment on who God can and cannot save. And I think that's a faithful application then from this text. So, anything else you guys want to add? That's a, I mean, that, think about that. That's a good application. I never would have gotten there. <laughs> but was, yeah. mm-hmm. And you could see how we got there, though, by going through these steps, starting with the observation and seeing how it looks like these characters are being compared in, um, in seemingly opposite ways than what you would expect, and how God saves and how God condemns. Um, and, it's, and it's cool and how, when you see things like that. So... Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and again, we thank you for this opportunity we have to look to your word, Lord, and to see how we can faithfully apply the theological meaning in the text, even if it is a narrative. Lord, I pray that we won't just simply read narrative as history alone, Lord, but theological history. Um, History that is um, teaching us about who you are, Lord, and about how you work in this world. Lord, I pray that you just continue to renew our minds and our hearts as we look to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.